he is a low information voter who became president, right? Like that is. <laughs> and he's still president. And he's still low information, unfortunately. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Coming up, uh, is it time? Is it time? Is it now time? Is it finally time? After four, five long months, is it time for Democrats in Congress to begin the case for the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump? Or... Should they wait until they gain control, if they gain control of the uh, of the Congress and the House in uh, in 2018? Or is it just too early to be discussing impeachment at all? Well, the nation's John Nichols says the time to begin is now, and he will join us shortly to make that case and to give us his take on the upcoming uh, and the, the, the recent special U.S. House elections and whether Democrats at the national level are taking those races seriously enough. Uh, but first, this just in from uh, CNN acting U.S. ambassador to China. David Rank has resigned from his post in Beijing over President Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. Several sources familiar with the decision told CNN. Wow. Wait. So. So wait, what? Yes, uh, he's out. He's uh, he's uh, this is the U.S. ambassador to China. This is the U.S., the acting U.S. ambassador to China. Uh, He's a uh, career foreign service officer since 1990. So he's you know, he's not necessarily an Obama guy. He has been serving in the government since 1990. Okay. Uh, He assumed the position of deputy chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing in January of last year. And he's been serving up until the arrival of Trump's pick for the job, former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad. He was confirmed by Congress late last month. Um, But David Rank says he's getting out now uh, over specifically over the uh, Donald Trump's decision last week to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. A senior State Department official told CNN 
that Mr. Rank has made a personal decision, though that senior State Department official stopped short of citing the climate uh, deal as the reason for him leaving. Uh, They said we appreciate his years of dedicated service to the State Department. However, sources familiar with the decision, according to CNN, indicated that Rank's departure is directly tied to Trump's controversial move to pull out of the accord. So the uh, the fallout continues from that decision last week, Desi Doyen, uh, as we suspected (laughs) that it would in a big way all over the world. China, of course, is the largest carbon emitter in the world. They said they will stick by their commitments to the treaty despite the U.S. decision. Rank, uh, CNN notes, is the second U.S. diplomat serving at one of the largest embassies in the world to publicly split with Donald Trump in recent days. The acting U.S. ambassador to the U.K., Louis Lukens, issued a statement on Twitter singling out London Mayor Sadiq Khan for praise after Trump had attacked the mayor, the mayor of London, on uh, on Twitter in the wake of the terror attacks, which killed at least seven people in London over the weekend. Lukens is serving as ambassador until Trump gets a permanent pick confirmed. But Trump has yet to formally nominate a choice for the uh, for the job of ambassador to the U.K. Prior to his inauguration, he said he would choose New York Jets owner Woody Johnson. Don't know if that's going to happen or not, but um, a lot of fallout uh, today, uh, including uh, to that uh, to that attack in London over the weekend and including to Donald Trump's Twitter tirade over the weekend and on Monday. U.S. President Donald Trump on Monday returned to a tougher stance on his restrictive immigration policy, referring to his executive order uh, himself, doing this himself once again as a travel ban in all caps and claiming that the Department of Justice, his own Department of Justice, should have never tried to soften his initial executive order, the one that was rejected by the courts as was the second one, the softened one, as he refers to it. Uh, He declared on Twitter on Monday, people, the lawyers, and the courts can call it whatever they want, but I am calling it what we need and what it is, a travel ban in all caps. In a string of tweets, according to Newsweek, Trump lamented that the Justice Department had sent a, quote, watered-down, politically correct version of the order in the appeal to the Supreme Court, which happened late last week. Trump, who argued in favor of a, quote, total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the U.S. during the, during the, uh, during the campaign, issued an executive order to restrict entry to the U.S. from the majority Muslim countries of Iran, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, and Syria, and initially, in his first order, also from Iraq. Federal courts in the states of Maryland and Hawaii have repeatedly blocked both attempted executive orders. And after the attacks in London on Saturday night left seven dead, Trump claimed that the travel ban was necessary to keep America safe. We need to be smart, vigilant and tough, he tweeted. We need the courts to give us back our rights. We need the travel ban as an extra level of safety, he tweeted. Trump and his team's reference uh, references to the order as a ban. And this is where he's getting into trouble, huge trouble, calling it a ban 
as well as his references during the campaign regarding Muslims uh, being the target of such a ban, have informed the rulings against the order. The courts have repeatedly cited Trump's words, Trump's tweets, Trump's comments. Uh, banning to the entry, uh, banning entry to the U.S. based on religion would be unconstitutional, as well as considering the terms of the order. The administration had begun to soften its rhetoric. In January, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer told reporters, "It's not a quote. It's not a Muslim ban. It's not a travel ban. It's a vetting system to keep America safe." Well, someone apparently needs to have told the president of the United States, because once again, Donald Trump twice over the past several days has called it a travel ban. It is not the first time Trump uh, has used that phrase. Newsweek notes on February 4, he tweeted, quote, what is our country coming to when a judge can halt a homeland security travel ban and anyone even with bad intentions, can come into the U.S. Well, that's not true because we've already had a vetting system in place. Um, nonetheless, Trump uh, previously ripped into the revised order, the second order that he himself issued, that he himself has criticized, uh, his second try at the ban um, after he removed Iraq from the seven countries listed in the January order. He ripped into it, calling it a watered-down version. In March, he called for a return to the original ban. And yet it's not the original ban that was brought to the Supreme Court announced by the Department of Justice last week. It is the second ban. The latest tweets reiterate this uh, with Trump saying that the Justice Department, quote, should have stayed with the original travel ban and should now once again, quote, seek a much tougher version it's just incredible the way he is undermining his own case before it is heard by the Supreme Court. In any event, he tweeted, we are all caps extreme vetting people coming into the U.S. in order to help keep our country safe. So he's saying we're already extreme vetting. Uh, the courts are slow and political. So now he takes a shot at the courts. So Trump is not only taking a shot at his own Justice Department and criticizing them for not appealing the first executive order instead, but promising that if the court uh, allows the second one to be uh, instated, he'll try again for the first one, the more extreme version. And he's criticizing the courts themselves, the judiciary itself, to boot uh, by taking a shot at the courts as slow and political. This is so dumb. So dumb for anyone heading uh, into the Supreme Court. I mean, it cannot be overstated how much these comments today are serving to undermine Trump's own case at the Supreme Court. Since the Department of Justice filed uh, for this appeal late last week um, to the to the 10 to 3 ruling that the administration lost at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Maryland, upholding the injunction, that is the nationwide injunction that was placed on Trump's executive order by the uh, lower federal district court. As a professor, professor of uh, constitutional and international law at Harvard University's Noah Feldman noted in his Bloomberg View column today on this, quote, all four tweets will be quoted by opponents of the travel ban. All four substantially strengthen the case for blocking the order as unconstitutional. Taking together, Feldman wrote, they amount to a nightmare scenario for the office of the solicitor general that must now represent the president in court. 
short of actually saying that the point of the order was to express anti-Muslim animus, there's not much Trump could have done to weaken his case more. Trump is going to uh, lose in the Supreme Court, Feldman predicts. After Monday morning, the question is now, by how much? Amazing. Uh, The phrasing and Trump's uh, own personal views have fueled the case against him in court. Newsweek notes Senator Ben Cardin said Monday that Trump's tweets, which leveled criticism at his own Justice Department, betrayed the true motivation of the policy that they seek to pass. The uh, Maryland Democrat said it clearly shows his intent. His lawyers try to justify it by saying it wasn't a travel ban, but it was extreme vetting. The president made that clear. It is a travel ban. As noted over the weekend, uh, following the attacks in London, uh, Trump has you know, tweeted multiple times to refer to his travel ban. Two of the names of the uh, three alleged attackers in London over the weekend have now both been finally released today. London police identified one as a British citizen born in Pakistan and the other who had been uh, who had had both Libyan and Moroccan nationalities. Uh, Their names had otherwise stayed off record and out of the public since the Saturday attacks that following another such incident two weeks ago in Manchester, after which Trump managed to incur the wrath of Britain's top officials after the administration released the name of the attacker in defiance of our British allies and their wishes in the immediate aftermath of the attack to to keep that name off record while they were still rounding up suspected accomplices. Uh, After that happened for a short time, uh, the U.K. intelligence services were so incensed they stopped sharing intelligence with the U.S. at all under what had previously been a very, very long-term intelligence-sharing arrangement between the, uh, between the two countries. So, yes, we have elected a low-information voter to be president of the United States, basically, who does, just does not understand how this works, how diplomacy works, how the courts work, how the law works. Britain eventually reinstated the intelligence sharing uh, program, but only after assurances from the Trump administration that they would prevent such unauthorized public releases of proprietary information in the future. Uh, They said at the time that the release of that information had jeopardized their ongoing investigation uh, as they were trying to round up uh, individuals suspected of being accomplices to or otherwise aware of the Manchester uh, pop concert bombing. Speaking to the BBC regarding the uh, this past weekend's attacks, London police chief Cressida Dick said that the majority of recent attacks have had a, quote, domestic center of gravity. Although he added with some of them, there are undoubtedly international dimensions. Indeed, the first victim uh, named in the attack over this uh, past weekend was a Canadian. Another victim had been identified by France as having been a French national. Washington Post reports that Saturday night's van and knife rampage was the second mass casualty attack to intrude on the home stretch of the UK's parliamentary campaign that was once again uh, thought uh, was once originally thought uh, certain to end in a landslide for Prime Minister Theresa May and the Conservatives. The race has tightened, however, in recent weeks. 
terrorism has introduced an unexpected variable. Those elections are still scheduled to be carried out this coming week in just a few days with pre-election polls reporting the race uh, facing off the Labor Party and its progressive leader, Jeremy Corbyn, against May and the conservatives. And those polls suggest the contest may be quickly tightening in the wake of the recent attacks in Britain. Meanwhile, as Donald Trump has taken to Twitter to use the attacks of his in his uh, political campaign to justify restrictions on travel from those six Muslim majority countries, he also took a shot at the London mayor, uh, which is just amazing. Uh, he he uh, chided London Mayor Sadiq Khan, a Muslim himself, for attempting to calm the public by assuring that there was no need to be alarm in the, alarmed in the face of additional police presence over the next several days following the attack on Saturday. Khan's comments were in reference to that escalated police presence on London streets, but Trump incorrectly applied that when he said no need to be alarmed, uh, he was talking about uh, the, the attack itself. So Trump took to Twitter and uh, <laughs> went out after the London mayor. Khan's uh, office released a statement saying that the mayor, quote, has more important things to do than respond to Donald Trump's ill-informed tweet. Trump's tweets were widely mocked in Great Britain where the overall uh, overwhelming mood was one of unity against terrorism and praise for security services. Mayor Khan said that he was furious that the attackers used Islam as justification for their actions. Uh, he said the ideology they follow is perverse and it is poisonous. And then later, again, on Monday, President Trump do doubled down, escalated his attack on Khan that he had begun on Sunday. On Monday, Trump tweeted... Quote, pathetic excuse by London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who had to think fast on his, quote, no reason to be alarmed statement. Well, he didn't have to think fast. All you had to do was read what Khan had actually said in his initial statement that Trump had used to criticize him. Apparently, Donald Trump did not bother to do so. This is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. It keeps being made worse and worse. By the way, our friend uh, Jenk Uger over at the Young Turks had tweeted today that Trump helps Islamic extremists by his openly bigoted attacks against the London mayor. They love it, he said, when he alienates more Muslims. Trump, meanwhile, has had very little to, to say about the killing of two Americans on a train in Portland, Oregon last week after they came to the defense of, uh, of Muslim women who were being uh, uh, attacked, essentially, by a right-winger on the train who claimed, following his address, that he was being a, a patriot by threatening the Muslim women. You call it terrorism, I call it patriotism, that American attacker said during his first uh, court appearance last week. The man was charged with fatally stabbing two men and injuring a third who tried to shield young women from uh, this anti-Muslim tirade this guy was on and that he appeared to be bragging about the attacks as he sat in the back of a police uh, patrol car after being arrested, saying, quote, that's what liberalism gets you, according to court documents. Apparently, liberalism gets you uh, nutballs like this who think they are justified in uh, in killing people who are defending uh, Muslim women on a train. In another tweet, 
Late last night, Donald Trump said, we must stop being politically correct and get down to the business of security for our people. If we don't get smart, it will only get worse. Good idea, I responded to him uh, last night on the Twitters. Got any plans to deal with the 32,000 Americans killed each year with guns? Well, that turned out apparently to be a very good question because Trump has so far failed to comment at all on the mass shooting on Monday morning here in Orlando, Florida. Luckily, I guess, because the alleged shooter doesn't uh, have an Islamic sounding name, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about the fact that five American citizens were gunned down in cold blood today by the shooter's semi-automatic weapon. That's that's just freedom. That's just the Second Amendment, baby. A lone gunman uh, returned with a semi-automatic pistol to the Orlando awning factory where he was fired from back in April and methodically killed five people on Monday and then killed himself at the sound of an approaching siren, according to the Orange County, Florida sheriff. Uh, the sheriff identified the shooter as a 45-year-old Army veteran who lived alone and did not appear to be a member of any type of subversive or terrorist organizations. Sheriff added uh, most of the victims were shot in the head. Some were shot multiple times. Five of them. Authorities were trying to reach the families of each victim before releasing the name. The, the, the motive remains unclear. However, um, the uh, the shooter here was fired from his job uh, and had a history of, uh, of actually battering a co-worker back in June of 2014. Otherwise, he had a, uh, a minor criminal record. State and law enforcement officers converged on the awning business in an industrial park of Orlando this morning, shortly after 8 a.m. Five people were killed. Seven others' lives were saved due to the quick actions of uh, law enforcement, who apparently were dispatched within 45 seconds and arrived two minutes later after they received a, a 911 call. Senator Bill Nelson of Florida called for more action to address mental health issues. He noted that next Monday will mark a year since the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history at a gay nightclub in Orlando. The attack at the Pulse Club killed 49 people and wounded dozen more, dozens more. No action to change gun laws, however, have been made since then, other than Donald Trump signing a Republican bill earlier this year to make it easier, not harder for those who have been determined uh, to be mentally ill to be able to purchase firearms. He has made it easier. So no wonder Trump hasn't been able to figure out anything to tweet about concerning that mass shooting in Orlando today. You'd think if it had been carried out by someone with a Muslim name, why he would certainly have had something to say about it by now. All right. Uh, in any case, uh, just more evidence of things not going well for for Donald Trump. Um, so let me do this. Take a quick break. I think we got John Nichols standing by. Uh, all of these are, are not the only problems for President Trump, frankly, and the Republicans. John Nichols of the nation will join me next to make the case for impeachment of the president of the United States. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. 
We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Impeachment already? The guy's only been in office for what? About four months at this point? I know, seems like four years. Good to be able to repurpose that old Neil Young uh, ditty from the George W. Bush era in any event. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On March 11, as Chris Saliza over at CNN notes today, 45% of Americans approved of the job Donald Trump was doing. In Gallup's daily tracking poll, 45 percent. That was pretty low, but it's been all downhill since then, he notes. In the intervening 86 days, Trump's job approval has never again reached even 45 percent in Gallup's data. In fact, the last time Trump was even at 43 percent was on April 28. He spent most of the time between then and now mired in the low 40s and high 30s. And now Trump finds himself in the midst of his worst extended poll run of his presidency. Starting on May 28, when Gallup put his uh, job approval at 42 percent, Trump has been sliding downward. The latest Gallup track on June 3 puts Trump's approval at a dismal 36%. That's a single percentage point away from the lowest ebb of his time in the White House. That was back on March 28 when his approval was at 35%. The Gallup numbers are no anomaly, Saliza writes. A Quinnipiac University poll released in late May put Trump's job approval at 37%. A Monmouth poll conducted in mid-May put Trump's job approval at 39%. Where Trump's numbers do stand out is in comparison to his presidential predecessors. President Obama was at 61 percent in the Gallup tracking poll in early June of uh, 2009. George W. Bush, who was not popular himself at all prior to 9-11, was at 55 percent in the Gallup poll at this time in 2001. The only modern president uh, who comes even close to Trump's poor poll standing is Bill Clinton, who was at 37 percent approval in early June of 1993. His numbers had tanked in the wake of his firing of seven employees at the White House travel office. Firing employees at the White House travel office, apparently, uh, used to be worth uh, your opinion polls sliding Our president has fired the uh, director of the FBI who was investigating him. In any event, as you'll recall, Bill Clinton also ended up facing impeachment. 
Now, Trump's poll numbers, if they stay anywhere near as low as they currently are, writes Saliza, could have a hugely negative impact on his party's chances in the 2018 midterm elections. Since 1946, according to Gallup, when a president's job approval rating is above 50 percent, the average number of seats his party loses in a midterm election is 14. That's when his approval is above 50 percent. When a president's job approval rating is below 50 percent, the average is a 36 seat loss in the midterm elections. If history holds, Democrats would likely take back control of the House in 2018, given that they only need 24 seats uh, to do so. But uh, one factor working against the Democrats, well, the House is pretty well sorted out on partisan lines, gerrymandered to that end. In fact, only 23 House Republicans currently represent districts Hillary Clinton carried last November. And that is, of course, no accident. The GOP has managed to gerrymander House districts lawfully or otherwise in a way that has never been accomplished, really, in American history. Still, as Saliza notes, a Democrat-controlled uh, House would be a nightmare for Donald Trump as he tried to begin preparations for a uh, re-election bid in 2020. And that's not the only reason it could be a nightmare for Trump. As John Nichols observed at The Nation late last week, in a public policy polling survey from mid-May, 48% of the people surveyed said they supported impeachment of Donald Trump, compared with just 41% who were opposed. That's right. More people are in favor of impeachment than against it right now. Nichols adds the list of grievances fueling the impeach Trump now campaign may have started with complaints that this uh, billionaire president is in violation of the Constitution's emolument clause, but that list of grievances has grown exponentially larger as this presidency has lurched from crises to crisis. Um, what crisis? Here now to explain how that uh, how that list has grown exponentially. And if this is the right time for Democrats to start talking about impeachment is our old friend, journalist John Nichols. He's a Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, and in these times, associate editor of The Capital Times, the daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin, and the author of three books, including a best-selling biography of Vice President Dick Cheney and co-author of five books on American democracy, media, and journalism. John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. It's great to be with you, my friend. We will uh, discuss whether or not impeachment right now is a good idea for the Democrats to bring forward or a good idea for the country, to be frank. But first, uh, let me let you make your case, uh, as you do, for impeachment against Donald J. Trump. Why, uh, why do you think that uh, impeachment uh, proceedings ought to begin? Well, I think he's met all the standards, and um, that ought to be the point at which uh, we become comfortable with putting impeachment on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, look, one of the, the great crises of uh, modern times in America has been the concentration of power in the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Presidents become more and more powerful. The legislative branch has, to more and more of an extent, been relegated to observer status. Now, the fact of the matter is the Congress and the uh, presidency, the legislative and executive branches, mm -hmm. are co-equal. And there is a duty on the part of Congress to check and balance the presidency, to oversee it, uh, 
and to respond if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, Congress is a often dysfunctional branch of government, but it is, especially at the House level, the representative branch. It's the place where the power to hold presidents to account at the initial stage was launched, and that is the impeachment power. Mm-hmm. Now, virtually half, and I suspect after recent events it may get higher, of Americans now say that the president should be impeached. I know that a lot of people would like to begin with the list of particulars on Donald Trump and say, he did this, he did that, mm-hmm. etc. But the fact that there is mass popular support for impeachment is the place at which we ought to begin. A representative branch of government should respond to that. It should recognize that there are tremendous numbers, tens of millions of Americans, who believe that this guy is governing in a way so atrocious, mm-hmm. so damaging, that action should be taken to remove him from his position. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that? Uh, we, of course, have the question of his own financial interests mm-hmm. and those of his family members, his political allies, his appointees. And the, I think, almost inarguable uh, conclusion that he is in conflict with the Emoluments Clause, mm-hmm. and that those he's appointing and empowering are in conflict with the Emoluments Clause. The Emoluments Clause is not there, by the way, uh, to you know prevent rich guys from getting richer when they hold public office. That clause is there to protect the sanctity of our government. Right. It's to make sure that we don't have you know kind of a grifter class come into the governing positions and use those positions to. Uh, enrich themselves while at the same time changing policies, especially foreign policies, in ways that might be particularly damaging. Right. But beyond the emoluments clause, which which I think is, is a legitimate beginning point, and some members of Congress have referenced it, we have the, the situation with the FBI Director Comey. Mm-hmm. Now, no matter what you think about Comey, and even if you believe that the President of the United States, as I do, has the power to remove a, a head of the FBI, right. the intentions that were involved there, and, and Trump's stated intentions and his stated reasons, point to an obstruction of justice. Now, you say, well, why don't we wait for Robert Mueller to go through his investigation? He'll and, maybe come to a conclusion next year or a couple years from now. And in, in fact, that's what a lot of Democrats are saying. This investigation is underway. Why don't we wait for the facts to come in uh, so that there is at least harder evidence uh, to bring up in articles of impeachment? Since the fact is, if, by the way, as you know, John Nichols, if uh, Mueller finds that the president did try to obstruct justice, they can't even bring charges against him, as I understand it, because a sitting president can't uh, can't be indicted. So shouldn't they wait until they have those hard facts before even beginning to discuss the particulars of impeachment? No, of course they shouldn't. Why? Impeachment's a political act. It's not a legal act. Right. If you're looking for the legal grounds for indicting mm-hmm. Donald Trump, um, yeah, you can wait. I don't know, wait four years, wait eight years, what the heck? You know, wait until they do all the inquiries they want. Right. But because the founders and their genius made impeachment a political act, they said that if you've got someone who is doing wrong in office or Mm -hmm. who appears to be doing wrong in office, who appears to be violating their oath, uh, violating the 
of impeachment, you then investigate them. Now, this is the important thing to understand about impeachment. Um, impeachment isn't the end of the line. Right. Impeachment's where you begin a serious inquiry. Mm-hmm. And so the notion that you would have what so clearly looks like an obstruction of justice, in combination with even clearer evidence of violations, with, again, the Emoluments Clause, with a variety of foreign policy decisions that, that appear to be made as much because of his financial interests or personal ties as they may be because of the national interests of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, know, you just kind of run down this list. Congress can start to act on those. Congress doesn't have to wait. Right. And, in fact, it shouldn't wait. But the goal of the impeachment power was to allow for an immediate inquiry rather than to allow the office of the presidency to be polluted, to be undermined, to be warped in a way that might harm the country. John, what's the what is the line, the dividing line between uh, you know we have these investigations in both the House and the Senate, in the intelligence committees, and in some of the other committees as well. I know there's been calls uh, from Democrats to have a uh, you know a special independent commission look at this. But what it what, since impeachment is really an investigation, it is not the trial itself, which takes place in the Senate, but the right. impeachment takes place in the House as an investigation. What is the what's the dividing line between, uh, you know, the congressional committees investigating and uh, an impeachment committee investigating? What, what, when do well, we go from one to the other? As you isn't see, isn't that an interesting question? Of course, there's no rules on it, mm-hmm. right? Um, there is there is simply intent. There's will, mm-hmm. um, and and in politics, we shouldn't disrespect that. This is one of the big problems that we have. Too often, we think of um, the judgment of a member of Congress, an elected representative of the people, mm-hmm. to be inferior to that of a investigator, because that member of Congress is potentially partisan. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I'm sorry, that's the game we've got. We have a partisan mm-hmm. politics in this country. And often, uh, that's that's where the impeachment power becomes most valuable, because it is there that someone who is a partisan, who can say, you know, look, I really don't like this guy. I want to find a way to, to get at this thing. Right. And so I moved this article of impeachment because I'm very, very concerned about it. Now, if it's just pure partisanship, right, mm-hmm. you're not going to get beyond your inner circle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a narrow inner circle. On the other hand, if that strikes a chord with the great mass of Americans, and if they say, hey, you know, that makes a lot of sense to us, Republican members of Congress will hear that, they will hear that message. And you say, well, oh, all Republicans are terrible, they'll never listen, they'll never do anything but pure partisanship. The fact is, that's not true. There are Republican members of the House of Representatives who have suggested Mm -hmm. that if you've got an obstruction of justice, that's an impeachable offense. Yeah. And and there are also other Republicans. And some of those Republicans, I think, are very principled. Mm-hmm. Others are pure partisan. You know, they're, they're politicians who are afraid that they're going to be in a dangerous place politically. But this is why we ought to stop fetishizing the impeachment power and start recognizing that it, it is it is a tool of governance that was established to make government work better. 
mm-hmm. not to not to create a constitutional crisis, but to address the potential of a constitutional crisis. And I think when you take it off the table, as so many Democratic leaders have suggested we should, mm-hmm. you really disarm. You put yourself in a position where holding a president to account uh, is sort of left to chance, and it's left to long-term processes that uh, lack the urgency that I think the American people, frankly, again, if you look at those poll- the polling data, right. uh, that the American people would like to see. Well, let me let me put it to you this way, John. Uh, of course, you know, because I, I tend to agree with you, I'm, I'm in favor of accountability, period, setting aside... Uh, you know, all political considerations. Right. I'm, I'm in favor of the appropriate, you know, accountability being brought against any president. So, uh, but let me ask you this on a political level. What is more potent politically, threat of impeachment or actual impeachment? In other words, you know, the country rallied around Bill Clinton, I mentioned earlier, when he was impeached uh, and the, the country ended up uh, tossing out uh, a Republican Senate, House, a Republican president, uh, uh, George W. Bush, under the Democrats' response to the last Republican administration uh, that, you know, where their impeachment came up, where Pelosi had talked about taking impeachment off the table, and they went ahead and they did very, very very well taking, you know, the House, the Senate and the White House. So on a political level, is, isn't, doesn't it make some sense for Nancy Pelosi, who seems to be suggesting again that Democrats want to take the impeachment off the table? But from their perspective, does that make sense? Well, that's a very good question. It gets, again, it's a very legitimate question because right. we're talking about a political tool here. Right. Not a legal tool. Right. And, and so... Here's what I would suggest to you. Yeah. If you believe that the American people have been reduced to pure partisanship, that it's all they care about, then um, certainly what the Democratic leaders are doing on this issue is, is I guess, fine. Right? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's putting the political ends of your party mm-hmm. uh, ahead of anything else. On the other hand, if you believe that the American people, especially in this era when there is so much distrust of both political parties and so much distrust of political leaders uh, across the spectrum, Mm -hmm. if you believe that the American people are actually looking for something genuine and they're looking for some standards, Mm -hmm. uh, then I would suggest putting impeachment off the table has political risks. And one of those risks is that people will say, gosh, you keep telling us that this guy is the, the most dangerous, most horrible mm-hmm. uh, commander-in-chief in American history. Uh, you tell us that he is launching you know, military initiatives and bombing raids without congressional authorization, mm-hmm. a, a clear violation of, of the Constitution. You tell us that he's violating the Emoluments Clause. You tell us that he's clearly lying about uh, Comey. And, well, you tell us all these things, mm-hmm. but, you have no, but you're not going to do anything about it for the better part of two years. Yeah. Why? Because you think maybe you can get a political advantage out of this. Well, perhaps that will work for them politically, and, and I understand that. But um, there is also the risk that you diminish the, the sense on the part of people that you can actually do something about this guy. 
Which which brings us to well, I, I want to talk to you in, a, in in a second here about some of these upcoming special elections for the U.S. House and some of them that we've held recently because I know you've been very critical of the Democrats and the way they've gone about those. But uh, but this sort of brings me well to to maybe a third way, uh, you know, as <laughs> impeachment here uh, is as you know more political than legal. Um, what about the idea of promising impeachment if you give us back control of the House? You know, I've often uh, been very critical uh, and I continue to be of Democrats because they don't give voters something to vote for. You know, in the presidential election, you were supposed to vote for Democrats because you were against Donald Trump. But uh, is the promise of impeachment, hey, if you give us the House in 2018, we will bring impeachment charges against Donald J. Trump. Is that something that is uh, potent and could also bring together uh, progressives like yourself with the mainstream uh, corporate uh, moderate Dems, as we refer to them. Well, I think you've I think you've raised a really interesting concept here, because of course let's let's speak about the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. and indeed it is an elephant. Yep. Um, the Republican Party controls the U.S. House and right. the U.S. Senate, and uh, Paul Ryan, the leader of the U.S. House, and Mitch McConnell, the leader of the U.S. Senate, have made it absolutely clear that they will bend. At, at every stage and at every turn to Donald Trump. They will do whatever they have to to help Donald Trump. Right. I think that's not because they like Trump, but because they are hyper-partisans who mm-hmm. see it as advantageous to mm-hmm. their own power and to their own advancement. And, and so the idea that impeachment will necessarily proceed in the current political context is, at, at best, uh, one that requires more development than what we've had now. Whether I like that or not doesn't matter. Um, and at worst, one that no matter what development comes forward, no matter what we learn mm-hmm. from Comey this week or whatever else, uh, it'll always be off the table because the Republicans are going to block it. Right. In a context like that, what you're talking about, Brad, makes a lot of sense. Right? To say, if you give us the power in this election, mm-hmm. we will check and balance Donald Trump. And, and you don't even have to go all the way to impeachment. I think what you would say is, you know, we will stop him. We will stop him from doing what he's doing. And if he acts lawlessly, if he goes, you know, to, to places to try and advance his agenda that are clearly unacceptable, constitutionally, legally, you know, whatever other way, we'll stop him with the power of impeachment. We won't put it off the table. Now, that's very similar to what Congressman Mark Pocan from Wisconsin has said. Mm-hmm. He hasn't proposed impeachment, but what he says is that when we see these things, we can't take impeachment off the table. We have to look at every option for how to deal with it. And and I think that that could, as you suggest, become something very energizing, very empowering, and also very legitimate politically, by the way. And there's simply no doubt that, that you know, if you turn the 2018 election into a referendum on Donald Trump, um, and Democrats won overwhelmingly, mm-hmm. you have your signal. Unfortunately... The suggestion that Democrats are going to do that mm-hmm. is exceptionally limited. <laughs> they just there's been no evidence of that sort of um, you know intense and, and impassioned faith in the process. That belief that the Constitution matters, that elections matter, and and too often it's been this you know a, a partisan game. 
Well, and for Democrats, it has been like, I mean, they, they are always afraid to take the more aggressive position. I mean, and, and there is a case, by the way, I should note that, you know, if the Democrats came out tomorrow and said, yes, give us the House in 2018, we will bring impeachment hearings. That would also, of course, and this is, I suspect, the argument that uh, Pelosi and friends would make that, you know, that will fire up the opposition to oppose Democrats in 2018 in order to, you know, hey, invoy, uh, avoid impeachment hearings, stick with the Republicans. Yeah, we could, like, the, the argument that you could sort of sneak by, mm-hmm. right? That, that you could say to the American, to, to, you know, a really impassioned Trump backer. Right. You know, oh, no, no, impeachment's off the table. We just want to run Congress for the fun of it. Uh, right. So they're not going I mean, so they're not going to buy that anyway, but I, no, of I, I but I suspect, you know, that is one of the fears of Democrats who are always afraid of pretty much everything. Which yeah. which brings me to these uh, special elections for the US House. Uh let me just tell you what, let me take a quick break and come back to talk to you about that to the uh the, the two that we've already had in Montana and Kansas and the two upcoming in Georgia and South Carolina in just about a week or two. I'm speaking with John Nichols. We will ask him about that. He has been very critical of the Democrats for the way they dealt with those special elections, as have we. We'll talk about that and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. You know, you would think that if anything, Donald Trump would bring the Democrats together in opposition to him. But uh, no, you know what? There's still a lot of infighting going on among Democrats and, uh, frankly, uh, a lot of criticism of the National Democrats for not taking some of these U.S. House elections seriously enough. These special elections to fill seats that have been vacated by Donald Trump appointees. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with John Nichols of The Nation magazine, and I want to talk about that a little bit, John, because I know you've been very critical of the uh, of the Democrats, uh, the U.S. House special election in uh, in Kansas, uh, in Montana, that uh, the essentially the institutional Democrats, the uh, DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign uh, uh, Committee, has not been putting enough money into these races, has not been taking them as seriously as they should. And we've got uh, another one coming up in two weeks, actually two of them coming up in two weeks, one in Georgia, uh, where the chances for the Democrat actually looks pretty good in a general sense, if we avoid the concerns about the voting systems there, Uh, and and in South Carolina, where the odds uh, look a little less good. But uh, have the Democrats learned anything from these last two special House elections in in uh, in Kansas and Montana? Do you see them uh, uh, taking the race any more seriously, at least in uh, in the sixth district in Georgia coming up? Well, I think they are taking it very seriously in the sixth in Georgia. 
Yeah. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one of which is that they they had a candidate come forward who I think a lot of Democrats on the ground, as well as a lot of Democrats in D.C., found very appealing. And uh, the guy behind him early on, mm-hmm. and he did well. He did extremely well in the primary. And uh, and so you know, it's it, in a primary situation like this, uh, if you can show a great deal of strength, get very close to where you need to be. Of course, you're going to have strong support. But of course, the Georgia race is a unique one because of the the way that their electoral structure was set up. You had that multi-candidate primary. Mm-hmm. Um, where we have seen it fall down is in more traditional races, like what you saw in Kansas and what you've seen in Montana, mm-hmm. uh, where you didn't have the multi-candidate primary, yet the parties choose their candidates. And in, in the Kansas race and the Montana race, what you ended up with as, your, as a candidate was a non-traditional, progressive, populist candidate who was determined to run a kind of big-picture campaign to go strong on economics, on justice issues, and that's racial justice, women's rights, uh, supporting LGBTQ rights. You know, just this, this full-scale message that wasn't kind of, uh, you know, like focus group tested out of D.C., mm-hmm. but was, in fact, of the heart. Uh, it was an impassioned message. Now, what's fascinating is that... Um, in, in Kansas in particular, a very undercovered race, James Thompson, the candidate there, um, came to within a whisker of winning that race. Right. With no help. There was no cavalry that came over the, you know, the, the hill or whatever. There was nobody that rode in to, to help the guy. And it was an um, incredibly uh, right-leaning Republican district in Kansas. Yeah. yeah. And he came within a, a, a really yeah. a narrow margin there. Yep. And all I'm telling you is, this is the bottom line. The Republicans recognized that a week out. Right. They fully recognized that that James Thompson was closing the gap with this really very inspired progressive populist campaign that could be a model for the whole country, especially for red states. Mm-hmm. Um, and they rushed in. They had Paul Ryan helping. They had Pence helping. They had Trump helping. They did everything to mobilize their base. The Democrats barely lifted a finger. Right. And, and and then they said, they had the audacity to say afterwards, well, if we had helped, um, he would have been accused of, of being a Democrat. <laughs> right? Or he would have been accused of Nas- getting help from Na- national Democrats. Nationalizing the race, they'd tie him to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, but James Thompson wanted to help. Yeah. He wasn't saying, oh, stay away. He was saying, let me run my own race. I know how to run a race. Boy, you want to throw some money in to, to help with some TV ads. I wouldn't mind that. And apparently they were doing it from day one anyway. They were calling, I think they, I think it was James Thompson that they called, you know, his uh, Nancy Pelosi's hand-picked... Oh, uh, of course. Uh, but, and they had apparently never even met. So it was, they're going to do that anyway, which, you know, sort of uh, underscores your, your argument for impeachment. They're going to do all, the Republicans are going to do all of the things that Democrats fear they will do whether the Democrats do those things or not. And, so, and here, yeah. if I could just take us around, Brad, sure. to the final point. Yep. I think we live in an era of accountability politics. I think we live in an era of authenticity politics. And so I don't think the old game of saying, yeah, this, this is a horrible person, um, and yeah, we have tools to do something about it, but we're not going to do it because we're waiting for the next election. 
necessarily satisfies people in the way that it once did. And all I would suggest to you is this. In 2008, when Democrats swept into power mm-hmm. uh, on really a change agenda, I, you don't have to agree with everything that, mm-hmm. that any particular candidate stood for, but it's clearly a change agenda. The immediate message was the past is the past. We aren't going to hold uh, the folks who crashed the global economy to account. We aren't going to hold people that let us into two disastrous wars and didn't pay for them to account. We're not going to hold anybody to account. We're just moving forward. Yep. When you do that, that gives the other side, in this case the Republicans, the ability to now put all the blame on the new folks in town. Mm-hmm. And so all I would suggest to you is this. If Democrats are serious about politics, they have to be about accountability. They have to be about, about saying, no, if somebody does something wrong, um, we're not just going to position for the next election. We're going to actually, you, know, you give us power, we're going to try and hold people to account for doing the wrong thing. I couldn't agree more, of course, and I would argue that it was that lack of accountability that uh, has resulted not only in Donald Trump, but in these, you know, these poli- that we're actually talking about torture again, that they're going to be able to do away with Dodd-Frank and, uh, you know, because they didn't bother to put the bankers in jail. No accountability. I think it would be lovely to see the Democrats become the accountability party. But I guess they have to be held accountable uh, first for that to happen. John Nichols, um, your article, It's Time to Make the Case for Impeaching Trump, can be found over at thenation.com. It ends this way. Impeachment is not a constitutional crisis. It is rather the cure for one, a failure to apply that cure for reasons of caution or partisan calculation is a form of political malpractice that ill serves the republic that not just presidents, but members of Congress swear to defend. I couldn't agree more. And uh, as ever, John, I thank you for making that case, making it loudly. I suspect you'll continue to do that. And uh, folks can find your uh, your work, your important work, at thenation.com and, of course, on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. John, always great to talk to you, my friend. Let's uh, try to do it again sooner this time. I appreciate it, my friend. Great to be with you. Thank you. Okay, and that's it for me. I got to get out. My thanks to my producer, Desi Doyen, to John Nichols of The Nation, of course, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Please find us and share us worldwide. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.